Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal-making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. How are we doing this week, Chris? Doing very well, Eric. How are you doing? Good, good. It's it's World Series week here. As we're taping this, we don't yet know the final matchup, but uh, as this will drop, uh, Game 1 will be the following day on Tuesday the 26th here. And, uh, you know, after everything uh, and all the uh, disruption of the pandemic last year to sort of have one of the biggest events uh, on the U.S. sports calendar back in local markets and back in front of uh, full houses again, it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, it should be a great series. And again, you know, you've got that going on at the same time with the NBA, the NFL, the NHL. So it's again a big time for sports. We we had uh, at least uh, one sports equinox uh, last week, and uh, you know, more to come here as the uh, series unfolds. Here, it is indeed a special time on the sports calendar. And there's a lot to unpack this week. We've got a couple of really big developments in the uh, cryptocurrency and digital collectible space that we've been spending so much time on this year, as well as uh, further movement in the uh, ongoing disruption of the uh, regional sports network business in the United States. But uh, first, we're going to spend some time on another big part of the uh, American sports calendar right now, college football. And we've got a uh, chat with George Klievkoff. He is the commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference coming in from outside of the realm of college sports uh, into the Pac-12 earlier this year. And he's going to spend some time with us and uh, break down all the changes that uh, he's seeing across the college sports landscape. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side with news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, George Klevkoff, Commissioner of the Pac-12 Conference. The longtime sports industry and media executive this past summer joined the ranks of U.S. college sports after prior stints with MGM Resorts International, MLB Advanced Media, NBC Universal, Hulu, and Hearst. And he made the move in the midst of historic levels of change within this part of the sports industry as it continues to be transformed with the arrival of new rules for athlete name, image and likeness rights and the ongoing development of a new model of governance by the NCAA. And within weeks of his arrival to the Pac-12, Klievkov completed an alliance with the Big Ten and Atlantic Coast Conferences that will cover multiple operational areas, including scheduling, postseason championships, and gender equity. George, welcome to the program. Hey, sir. Good to talk to you. So let's start with uh, sort of your own uh, career path here. College sports in the United States, often kind of an insular thing where folks are, uh, you know, risen through the ranks from within the ranks, and you don't necessarily see an outside hire such as yours coming in at the level that you obviously did. What attracted you to this role, and how do you think you sort of sold them on you? Well, I think what attracted me to the role is the mission. You know, I, my thought is if I'm doing my job well and my colleagues at the PAC 12 conference are doing their jobs well that we are protecting and creating more scholarships and more kids get to have an education at one of our 12 fine institutions than otherwise would have that opportunity. And I honestly can't think of a mission more important than that. I have publicly said that I think I went from the best job in entertainment to the best job in sports. George, you spent some time earlier in your career with MLB. How would you discuss the kind of governance and decision-making process 
of a major sports league versus a, a major college conference? What's been different in that regard? Well, they're both operated primarily by committee with lots of people having input. But what I would say is, you know, at, at a professional sports league, the committee is made up of one group of folks, and that is the owners, right? It's, it's a group of owners, and depending on what sport you're in, it's 30 or so owners that you're reporting to generally through a board. What's interesting about college athletics is at the end of the day, I report to a board, which is the 12 presidents and chancellors, but there are lots of other constituents that have a say and an important part in the governance role. You know, I've got all of the athletic directors. I, you know, I, I work with all of the coaches. We've got all of the faculty athletic representatives, the senior women administrators, and Everyone has input, and I'm also very proud of the fact that the Pac-12 is the first conference that included student-athletes in our governance structure. We've got a student-athlete leadership team, SALT, that actually participates in our council and makes recommendations on legislative matters that the conference has to deal with. And the breadth and scope of constituents who have a say in college athletics, I would say, is unusual, but, but I actually love that. I mentioned the alliance before between the Pac-12, Big Ten, and the ACC that is that you just did and is now uh, beginning to unfold here. What is the pathway to have sort of concrete, tangible moves and changes coming out of that? Yeah, so uh, let's start with how that happened. Uh, you know, my second week on the job, the news about Texas and Oklahoma leaving the Big 12 and going to the SEC leaked. And that started a process internally for us at the Pac-12 to determine whether or not we wanted to expand. And we, we went through a very formal process, but, but we wanted to do it quickly because of all the vibration that was going on in college athletics that we didn't think was good for, for anybody. And we quickly came to the determination that we didn't need to add schools and that we were pretty happy with the 12 we had. But going through the process led us to kind of an understanding of why you would add schools. You might want to open new markets and territories for television or for recruiting. You might want to be in new time zones. You might want to create new interesting matchups. And as we were going through that process of thinking of why you would expand the conference, that led us to realize that we might be able to achieve many, if not all of those goals and some other goals as well without expansion, just by creating the alliance. And I think the decision that our presidents and chancellors came to with respect to that was matched by the other institutions in the ACC and Big Ten, and the alliance was formed. And it's really about three things. The first is working together to share best practices on what we each individually do at our 41 institutions and three conferences to support our student-athletes. So that is everything from leadership development and uh, mental and physical health and continuing education and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it, all of us do great work in that space, but we all believe that we can learn from each other. So best practices across those. And I think you'll see some announcements about things that we'll do in that space shortly in the next couple of months. The second is working together on the huge issues that you mentioned in the introduction related to everything that's going on in college athletics. How do we work together to protect the collegiate model as we work through the fallout from the Alston Supreme Court decision and NIL coming into effect July 1st and college football playoff expansion and the new governance structure that will fall out of the NCAA Constitutional Convention? And again, this is not a voting alliance. This is just let's talk about ways to work together 
to make sure that those come out the way that is in the best interest of all of college athletics. And then finally, the piece that gets the most attention, but is really third among the three priorities for the alliance, is scheduling. And, you know, there is different timelines for football, women's and men's basketball, and the rest of our sports when it comes to the scheduling alliance coming to fruition. Football is the one that's particularly difficult, but also one of the biggest opportunities. I think the way that we schedule college football today is broken. You know, one of my observations coming in is it doesn't make sense to me that you're scheduling games 12 to 15 years out. And obviously, when a couple of schools do that, the others have to do that to make sure they have folks to play. But for us, it makes much more sense to schedule those interconference games eight months out instead of 12 years out. And with the alliance, when you know that you're going to have games to play, you don't know who it's going to be among the ACC or the Big Ten, but the Pac-12 teams know that they'll have those games to play, then you can be much smarter about waiting till eight months out after the end of the previous season and create really compelling matchups in real time. And I think that's a much better solution. George, outside of your conference, the alliance you've created, do you expect to see a lot more realignment in college sports over the next 12 to 18 months? Are there going to be further major moves out there? Well, again, we came to the decision, as did the Big Ten and the ACC, that we were okay with the numbers that we had, that we didn't need to add anyone. And again, part of the announcement of the alliance was to settle the vibrations that were going on as a result of the Texas and Oklahoma news. I think us announcing that we were staying where we are allowed the Big 12 to do what they needed to do to reconstitute themselves. And you, you've seen the announcement about the four teams that they're planning to add to their conference. And now in the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is now we're going through the group of five and they are deciding where they're going to settle with respect to realignment. And I think that'll take another you know three, four weeks to get through the group of five And then my estimation is once we get through that round of realignment, you asked about the next 12 to 18 months, I think we're done. Again, when media rights come up for renegotiation, that's when we'll see this again. The Big 10 is two years out. We're three years out. The Big 12 is four years out. But I think we're all pretty settled. Uh, But there will be another set of realignment, but it's not in the 12 to 18 month time frame. Moving to the college football playoff, you've been on record uh, in favor of expanding it beyond the four teams, but there's been some sort of twists and turns uh, as the various uh, steps of the process have unfolded here in recent months. But how do, how do you see that CFP expansion process ultimately landing? Yeah, well, again, coming in from the outside, I look at four teams making the CFP every year and the history of that over the last seven years, and I think we have a broken system. I think a system where only 3% of our student athletes get to play for a championship, where in every other NCAA sport, it's 18 to 25% of the kids get to play for their championship. And also a system where only four teams make it actually lead to a circumstance where if you make it in one of the early years into the CFP, makes it easier to recruit the five-star talent and to return. And what that results in is what we've seen over the last seven years, which is 20 of the 28 spots going to four teams. And if you're a fan of one of those four teams, it's great and it's been a heyday for you. If you're a fan of college football or or any of the other teams, it's not great for college football. And it's not a great look. And I think it makes sense to expand, whether that ends up being eight or 12 teams, I I don't know. 
we're in favor of expansion. We're in favor of, of expansion sooner rather than later. Don't think we need to wait till the end of the current term of the contract. What I will say is I think we did a great disservice to our fans by announcing a proposal that had been vetted by four of the 11 folks who needed to approve it before it became the next iteration of CFP. You know, I, th- I think that was a mistake. I think the four folks who worked on that over two years did an incredible job, but I think it should have been vetted among everybody and we should have had complete agreement before we announced it in June because we've misset expectations about how quickly we can come to a conclusion. What I would say is the 12 team proposal has some issues that we have and others have related to student health and academics and a couple of other issues. We're working through those with the rest of the 11 folks in the room that have to approve the expansion. There are some conferences that would prefer eight, some conferences that would prefer 12. We're flexible if those issues get resolved. But again, I think the mistake we made in June was announcing it publicly before it was agreed. So I'd rather do the work in the room, come to an agreement among the 11, and then announce that rather than trying to negotiate different positions publicly. George, you mentioned that your media rights are up in in a few years. What can you do both now and as you approach those negotiations to enhance the Pac-12's media business? Yeah, well, I I think it's a combination of things. I I, I think the first is we have to be better as a conference and don't know if it happens in, in the next two or three years, but we have to be better as a conference at the two biggest revenue sports. Football and men's basketball are sports that generate the vast majority of the revenue of college athletics. And we've been good in those sports, but but we haven't won a championship in either of those sports in 17 years. And we need to fix that. And I've been very transparent about that. And, you know, when I look at that and look at uh, ways to fix it, most of the decisions that determine whether or not you get a CFP invitation or how many NCAA tournament bids you uh, get and what seedings you get are done at the school level, right? What coach do you hire? What facilities do you build? How do you approach recruiting? But at the margins, you know, 20, 25% of those decisions are held by the conference. And our conference five years ago put in place a strategic plan to elevate men's basketball. And I think you saw the fruits of that start to come out in our performance in the tournament last year. And we intend to double down on that and continue. I announced at Football Media Day, my third week on the job, that we were doing a similar thing for football, creating a football working group to make a recommendation to me about what choices the conference can make, scheduling, whether or not we should have divisions, all all of those decisions that would help elevate football for the Pac-12 and give us a better chance to optimize for the number of CFP invitations we get. So we're doing that. The second thing is, Set aside those two sports and every other sport, collectively, we dominate. You know, I think it's 54 of the last 60 years and each of the last 16 years, the Pac-12 has won more national championships than any other conference. We are the conference of champions. And I think we have to do a better job about telling that story. I think you just look at our dominance in women's basketball last year. It's a great microcosm example of how you know, we win more championships and we intend to continue to invest to win more championships than other conferences. And I think that's really valuable media rights going forward. And we just have to be better about telling that story. You're obviously coming from the world of 
legal betting here. As you now go into this role, how do you sort of assess the betting opportunity as it interrelates with the educational mission uh, that you obviously have as well? Yeah, I think that's going to have to be a school by school decision. I think at the conference, we can put in place best practices, create opportunities for our schools that want to take advantage of it. I think we have schools that will not be doing sports betting anytime soon, if ever. I think uh, we have at least one school that's already done a sponsorship with PointsBet. That's the University of Colorado. So we, you know, we run the spectrum there. Um, I'll tell you personally, my thoughts about sports betting are, you know, it's the one of the biggest growth industries right now in the U.S. It's scheduled by 2025 to be as a legal sports betting business somewhere in the 25 to 30 billion dollar range. You know, depends on kind of which report you read and what you believe. But the general consensus is the illegal sports betting market today is 120 to 150 billion dollars. So it's not like if we don't embrace this, people aren't going to bet on our sports, right? After you know, NFL, NBA, college football, college basketball are what people bet on. And I think legalizing it, kind of taxing it, using some of that money to protect our student athletes, maybe getting some rules in place that are specifically designed to protect student athletes. You know, one of the one of the obvious ones is, you know, in New Jersey, you can't bet on Rutgers. In Nevada, you can't bet on UNLV. I think those are good rules. Controlling some of the prop bets to make sure we're not putting you know, athletes in positions where they can determine the outcome of bets. There are ways to protect. And I'd like to see those in place, irrespective of whether our schools embrace the marketing sponsorship opportunity related to sports betting. George, another big area of potential new opportunity involves the changing NIL rules. How do you anticipate those changing rules impacting the business of college sports? And what are you doing at the conference level to help manage those changes? Yeah, so again, 100% in favor of NIL and kids being able to use their brand to generate revenue. I never thought it made sense that a student athlete who shared a dorm room with a musician who was on scholarship and could have a YouTube channel and monetize their brand couldn't do the same thing without losing their eligibility. So we embrace NIL. We think it's a good thing. We have a hard and fast line, which I think is shared by the commissioners of all of the other conferences that I've spoken to, which is... NIL should not be able to be used for inducement, you know, can't pay you to go to a particular school, and it should not be pay for play, can't, can't pay you to be on a team or to score a touchdown. I think everybody agrees with that. The problem today is we've got a patchwork of state laws, and what we really need is federal legislation that sets those rules and make sure that everyone is on an even playing field. At the conference level, we think it's a growth opportunity for the conference. You know, BYU may change this in a couple of years, but today we have the only Power Five schools that are in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We're in five of the top 20 DMAs in the country without Power Five competition. We have alumni who have started and run the most important companies in the world. And we think NIL is a big opportunity for the Pac-12. At the conference level, We've done an interesting thing because we own all of our media rights, which is different than other conferences. We created a highlight package for every one of our kids, and the kids get free access to that to use on their social media channels to promote themselves. When they want to use that highlight package to help promote a, you know, a, a brand that they have a NIL deal with, if that's an approved NIL deal, the brand can come to us and license that 
content and use it to promote their product and service. So we're trying to do everything we can to help our kids. We think it's a growth opportunity, but we do need some federal legislation. Shifting to another emerging area, NFTs, you recently did a deal with Recur. How does that uh, sort of uh, get a foot in the ground for you? And where do you see that opportunity going? Yeah, I think we're still trying to understand what that looks like. We understand what the NBA has done and we, we look at what some of the other professional leagues have done and we want to explore and we want to see whether or not that might be an opportunity. You know, I, I think it's like all emerging technology. You know, one of the unique things about the Pac-12 is probably because of physical area in which we sit, right? Silicon Valley is in the center of our conference. We always think about ourselves as, as the innovators and the folks that do stuff first. And we're happy to lean into every new technology and we want to see whether NFT becomes a, a, a real growth opportunity or not. Don't know the answer to that, but, but willing to try. George, there's a lot going on in uh, college sports these days and a lot of topics we've covered on the podcast today. As you think about your first year on the job as commissioner, what are the one or two or three things you feel like you really need to get done? What are the, the big accomplishments you hope to have after your first year in office? Yeah, well, I, I think we talked about them before, but I have four priorities for the conference, right? The first one is extending the leadership position that the Pac-12 has and being not just the thought leader, but the action leader when it comes to taking care of our student athletes, making sure we are at the forefront of mental and physical health, uh, career development, leadership training, everything that makes the student athlete experience better. And that first priority is the filter by which I think about any decision that I get to make at the conference level. The second is accelerating and elevating our football and men's basketball programs to a point where we're optimizing for CFP invitations, NCAA bids, and seeding. The third is extending our leadership position as the Conference of Champions for all of our other sports. And the fourth is doing what we talked about earlier, which is everything we can to position ourselves well for what I believe will be a very robust media rights renegotiation in a couple of years. So those are our four priorities. And yeah, those will change over time, but but as a snapshot, that that that's what I'm thinking about today. Well, the transformation of the American college sports landscape uh, continues to be really fascinating and something uh, just rife with big changes happening now and continuing to come. George Kliakoff uh, with the Pac-12 obviously sitting right in the center of this. Uh, we're going to be continuing to track this across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank George for spending this time with us. Eric, Chris, great to talk to both of you. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank George Klievkoff from the Pac-12 Conference again for spending that time with us. And shifting to the news of the week now here, uh, we've been spending a lot of time uh, in prior weeks on the podcast uh, on the whole realm of cryptocurrency and digital collectibles and NFTs, a number of areas which are separate but interrelated here. And there are a couple of really big deals that uh, caught both of our eye here this week here, starting with the NBA. They did a uh, deal with Coinbase. This is a uh, cryptocurrency exchange here. And interesting in the sense that uh, we've seen a lot of team level crypto activity in terms of cryptocurrency sponsorships. We had uh, an arena deal in Miami with FTX and a couple of Jersey deals, uh, Philadelphia and Portland. This is the NBA doing a league level deal and bringing in the G League and the 2K League and the WNBA in along with this. 
you know, and sort of going at that larger scale here. And it just really kind of heralds again how much the cryptocurrency industry is really transforming the entire sports sponsorship landscape as we speak. It's been a great boon to the sports industry. And I think what you see with these crypto companies is that they are looking for the association, the exposure, the credibility they get by partnering with these big leagues and teams. I'm not sure they're looking at it as a per sign up or, you know, what's the return on investment in such strict dollar amounts. I think it's more about creating that awareness and creating the education for fans about crypto being mainstream. And I, and I think that worked in the daily fantasy example four or five years ago. And I think now the, the crypto folks have taken that playbook. Now, what's interesting here, though, I mean, daily fantasy is a little bit different because you're dealing with it sort of the endemic sports activity in and of itself that, you know, these crypto companies could do, you know, they're doing a lot of big fundraisings and, you know, there's marketing budgets that could be deployed in a lot of different directions. But clearly they see a pretty strong Venn diagram overlap here in terms of their audience and their potential audience with that of the sports industry. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there certainly is that. And I think, you know, you get into NFTs and some of the other executions which are related to the crypto space that also are relevant. But my sense is, Eric, that like, and, and the reason I brought up the Daily Fantasy example is because there was at that time a kind of question about the regulatory uh, nature of that particular property. And I think right now, by all of these crypto companies coming in and doing deals with very big established sports leagues, I think that gets them more into the mainstream and potentially less likely to be you know, regulated. Again, I'm not an expert on that, but I think there's some element of credibility here that leagues and sports teams like nobody else can provide. That's why you have sports sponsorships with, with uh, traditional brands. It's because of that credibility and that value of the association. Yeah, and there's certainly a halo effect to, to your point here. And, and, and you look at somebody like, uh, you know, some of these major teams, uh, the Sixers or the Blazers or what have you, now this NBA league level thing, there's clearly been a vetting process that goes on here that, you know, they're not going to just sign a sponsorship with anybody and they're going to sort of scour through and make sure that there's, you know, funding commitments in place and that there's a management structure and all these kinds of things that, you know, not only are the bills going to get paid, but there's going to be a, you know, sort of reputational component that's held in check and all that sort of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, but these are, these don't appear to be small deals, at least the ones that have been right. announced. I think the, uh, the Miami Heat deal was, was reported at about $135 million. That's that was right. a naming, naming rights deal. I think the F1 deal was $100 million over some period of time. I think Drone Racing League did a, a deal that was $100 million, at least reported. So these are big deals, big opportunities. Yeah. And I think that's why it's you see the sports figures. Yeah, you, you you see the sports leagues really taking them seriously. Yeah, so you would seem to think that you, this would put some more pressure on some of the other properties. NFL certainly comes to mind to do more of this sort of thing at the league level. You know, baseball did the FTX thing, and you now, and particularly with World Series this week, as we discussed, you'll see the umpires as they have been since the middle of the season wearing that FTX logo. But some of these other uh, leagues, you know, it's it's probably going to the spotlight's going to be increasingly on them to see what they do along the lines of what the NBA and Major League Baseball have done. Certainly. And, and the NFL is going to be perhaps the most interesting one to watch. And, you know, what was interesting about the NBA is the way they carved up the rights is you have this national league level deal. 
And then you also have individual team level deals with other crypto providers. It'll be interesting to see if the NFL does the same kind of strategy that I call it, have your cake and eat it too, have a national sponsor at the league level, and then have all the teams do their own sponsorships. We'll see where they decide to come out on that, but there's a lot of money at stake. Well, and you look at what the NFL has done with regard to uh, legal sports betting in the United States. They were not remotely the first out of the gate on that, but you know, as they finally showed up to the party, they did so in a very, very robust way, as we discussed earlier this year. And you know, the two waves of deals that they did on the for the American market, and you got to think a similar playbook is going to be at hand here. Yeah, no, I'm I'm confident that they're getting some very nice calls and having some good meetings, and we'll see when uh, they pull the trigger on this category. So, moving from uh, not very far from the realm of crypto to that of NFTs and digital collectibles, another big fundraising in that space. We had talked uh, not long ago about Dapper Labs and So Rare. Now we've got Candy Digital, and this is the one that uh, involves fanatics, uh, Michael Rubin, and some others. They've raised $100 million and they've got a relationship with Major League Baseball. And, you know, this is just another NFT player, you know, with a big chunk of change now ready to deploy, ready to do more deals and and make some noise in the space. It really has been a crazy couple of months. And we talked about this on one of the previous podcasts, Eric. We, We had this excitement about NFTs in the spring seemed to calm down a little bit over the summer. And now in the last five or six weeks, you know, Dapper... Labs raised a big chunk of money and did an NFL deal. So Rare raised money. Zed Run uh, may raise money through uh, through Churnin. Now we have this candy deal. So there really seems to be a lot of momentum in the marketplace right now around around the NFT space. Yeah, and and it seems like uh, there's been some uh, the learning curve is is helped that more consumers are kind of understanding what this is all about because there's you know some initial barrier to entry in terms of what, understanding how this all works and then sort of just marrying that up with you know the types of products and imagery that people want to see there you know we had another deal where the uh, famous Costacos posters from the 80s and early 90s are being turned into NFTs that's that's imagery that people loved from a generation ago and now that being married up with the modern tech technology or some of the other things that we've done uh, that we've talked about in terms of mirroring NFTs up with fantasy or some of these other components that it, it seems like there's been a good wave of product development as well that's sort of helping to kind of further this energy in the space. Yeah, and there's been some even some mainstreaming of distribution. So now, yeah. as you know, DraftKings launched a marketplace with autographs. So they're out there. So it's not just going to OpenSea, but it's going to some other destinations that already have a big audience of digital savvy folks who would be interested in this. So I I do see this all continuing. What is your sense of how this um, marketplace is shaking out? Is there a competitive set that, you know, we talked about Dapper Labs and So Rare and some of these others, and obviously you mentioned DraftKings and Autograph, that you know, is it really everybody's just eating what they can kill at this point? Or is there some going to be a point where there's actually a zero sum element to this and people stealing market share from each other? Right now, it seems like there's still growth ahead for everybody. What is interesting to me is how different properties have focused on different either rights or different approaches. So Candy has the deal with MLB, 
Uh, Dapper has NBA, NFL. So Rare has focused more on soccer and also the kind of the playability or the fantasy elements. Yep. Zed Run has done horse racing. So everybody's kind of gone into a different zone to try to get their own credibility and their own strength. We'll see how you know many other growth vectors there are, but I think we're still in the early days of this competitive dynamic. Yeah, and this and from fanatic standpoint, and Michael Rubin, this really just kind of furthers the you know just dramatic transformation in that company this year. That you know they you know we've known obviously for months that he's been working on this, but now there's this major fundraising. The card piece is coming into play. He continues to you know work his way to try to find a meaningful foothold in the legal sports betting space here. That you know all of these sort of marking posts that just really kind of further signals you know, just the scope and depth of his ambition. He's making a big impact. Uh, you know, he obviously has for years, but certainly in the last six months, I think it starts with the fact that they have a database of 80 million buyers or fans that they already have and can leverage. What has been interesting to me about the way they've done these new businesses, though, is they've created, in a sense, separate deals for the trading card uh, entity, the NFT entity. So there's different investors involved in each of those. And I do wonder in the long run how that works out when you try to cross-pollinate, hey, somebody bought an NFT, now let's sell them some trading cards or vice versa. Again, they can control all of that, but it is interesting that that wasn't all brought into the mothership. They have separate business entities around each of these new areas. Yeah, legally, the constructs are very separate and the investment tables and all that, your point is very well taken. But a lot of what's also fueling all of these areas is just all of the very close one-to-one relationships that Michael has with all of the power brokers in this space, whether it be the league commissioners or really powerful owners like a Bob Kraft or a Jerry Jones or you know whoever that like he's tight with all of these people. So when it comes time to do the deal, depending on how you structure it, you know, those, those pathways have already been, you know, grooved pretty uh, significantly because there's that existing relationship and that trust, and they've already done billions of dollars worth of business together. Yeah, they they have tremendous relationships. They have a track record of success, so that really gets you very far. As I said, though, what just is is a little bit curious to me is. Uh, the decision not to raise a bunch of money into the fanatics mothership and build all these businesses. I guess what they wanted to do is be able to give equity to different parties. For example, I believe some of the the baseball uh, or, or, or sports leagues and players associations got some equity in the uh, in the trading card deal. There may be, if they do a betting deal, some other equity configurations there. So maybe it was really done to incentivize the right group of partners for each of those businesses. I think there's certainly that's a prime component, but then probably some protection to the the core apparel business that if, uh, you know, for whatever reason, any or all of these uh, outside entities run sideways in some fashion, there's still a really nice apparel business happening. Yeah, well, look. Right now, they've they've they seem to be in the center of the sports ecosystem. Everybody I talk to wants to meet fanatics, wants to get involved with them, wants to do something with them, and that really is a credit to Michael. And it was not obviously they've had a lot of momentum in the last six months, but this has been many many years in the making for him. So, so congratulations to him on that. 
Well, another uh, space that uh, Michael Rubin and Fanatics have made a little bit of noise on, and we'll see to what degree they get involved here, is the regional sports network business in the United States, which has been increasingly challenged amid cord cutting and uh, distributor pushback on the expense of these channels. And uh, there's been some real battles in that industry. And what we're seeing now very quickly emerge and, 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 uh, MLB Commissioner Rob Manford, among others, uh, you know, increasingly vocal about this, that they want to pool their own digital, local, uh, uh, and regional rights and go direct to consumer themselves rather than just licensing out to a Sinclair or what have you, as you thought might happen here next year, year after. I mean, so we've already talked about it. Sinclair wants to have a uh, DDC uh, model with their uh, Bally Networks next year. But what we're increasingly hearing is that the leagues really want to have much more control in that and not just do your standard kind of rights deal and create their own product they go to direct to consumer with. And this would be, you know, really one of the most dramatic upheavals of the entire sports television landscape in the U.S. since the advent of cable itself. Yeah, I, I think it really reflects, Eric, the challenges with the existing RSN model and, and the cord cutting, and I think a realization by everybody that you need to have a streaming service in addition to the RSN. The question becomes, who runs it? How do you divide up the economics? You know, while the leagues and, and the teams you know, want to have streaming, they also still want to get paid the nice check by the RSNs. So it's it's one of those balancing act that I think everybody knows where this needs to go. You need to have choice so that particularly younger consumers who don't want cable packages can buy the streaming service. If other people want the cable, that's fine. And But this is who's going to do it and how do you divide up the spoils is going to take some wrangling over the next couple of years. Yeah, but the nice check, that's really the other piece of this that, you know, particularly thinking about, you know, the teams that have a lot of RSN games, your MLB teams, your NHL teams, your NBA teams, uh, and MLB in particular, you know, they're very accustomed to having those you know, mid eight figure, if not nine figure checks every year from the RSN. And, you know, you can have all the talented people and all the great investors in the world to try to recreate that in a streaming standpoint. It's still a lot of work to be able to recreate that check that's been coming every year. Yeah. And that check basically, as we've talked about in the past, comes from people who aren't even watching your service. They're paying their cable bill and they may or may not be watching sports. And I think the other kind of uh, you know thing they're going to have to manage is all these rights are up in different periods of time. Some teams have signed 20-year deals with their RSN partners. Right. Some teams have signed five-year deals, three-year deals, eight-year deals. So how do you manage the expiration of all of these contracts? With equity with some, components on with, top of it. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and with teams, you know, as, as, as we say, liking to get that check every year, but realizing at some level they need to serve the fans who don't want to pay for the cable bundle. Yeah, and this um, – there is precedent, just speaking again specifically to baseball here, there is precedent sort of going at it in a very controlled, centralized fashion, even admit it, all the the you know complex rights landscape that you manage. You think about the digital rights of baseball and how they've been deployed over the years. You know, there there are in some instances some increased local level rights, but really the you know, for the past twenty years, that's been very much a centralized league run thing and run very well. And Bob Bowman's not there anymore and he's been gone for several years now, but there is a precedent of doing that in a very sort of high quality, controlled fashion with a real focus on on product and having really compelling product. And that would be, you know, if 
you know, I were advising baseball that that would be really the, some of the key hallmarks that, you know, yes, a lot of this stuff in terms of the economics and the rights and so forth, are very complex. But if you sort of do that in those sort of very product and fan focused ways that they've done everything else heretofore with regard to the apps and MLB TV, that puts them in a much better position. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree that having that control is helpful. The other kind of factor that will play into this is where where does the sports betting piece fall because yeah. the streaming really could even further supercharge sports betting the local streaming uh, but on the other hand Sinclair at least one of the players in the space has gotten this big deal with Bally's and I think they've focused a lot of their energy on the benefits of sports betting so that new revenue stream or opportunity with in-game play is going to create uh, again, I think some big upside, but how that gets shared between the constituents could be a little messy. Yeah. And the, and the fact that the leagues are making this kind of noise and speaking to Sinclair's piece of this, that the fact that Sinclair or the leagues really want to go on this route themselves, it really is kind of a statement that, you know, the trust and, and reliance on Sinclair is certainly not what it was. And not just because of the factors that we've discussed in terms of the, the basic cable model and RSN model, but, you know, the debt that Sinclair took on to buy the Fox RSNs that obviously become the Bally's now under this new branding that there are some clear signaling here that, you know, leaks think that not only could they potentially do a better job on their own, that Sinclair just may not have the wherewithal to get where these leaks want to go. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny about, again, on, on the national level, I think four or five years ago, there was some concern about cord cutting and ESPN's losing homes. And, you know, are the rights going to be the same for all these big sports leagues when they come up again? And sure enough, you know, the rights have been really buoyant on the national level. There have been new bidders. There have been new streaming services. There's a lot of different kind of competitors. That's kind of different than the local level where you only have maybe one choice or a couple of choices from a where could these games really physically reside. So that's why I do think the leagues are taking matters into their own hands to a greater degree. It's, it's about the quality production and control, but it's about kind of having their own economic destiny in front of them. And I, I think that's a little bit of a difference from the national level. And that's a really good point because to get that kind of national dynamic on a local level, you'd have to blow up the entire territorial maps. And none of these leagues, uh, you know, have shown any sort of desire or willingness to go down that road. And obviously that's a whole other very complex, legally fraught route. But to get to that point, you basically would have to blow up the market DMAs as we know them. Yeah. Well, look, I think the leagues recognize that among all of the pieces of business they are working on, this is the one that probably needs the most uh, radical transformation in the sense that, you know, we're going to be at a place here in a few years where, you know, we may see up to half of, of consumers not having uh, cable or satellite and just doing streaming. So you've got to serve those customers somehow. And, and I think they've got to prepare for that. Not only that, but fandom in sports is really at that local tribal level that, you know, even though you you don't have the kind of multiple bidder dynamics at that local level, like we're talking about here that exists at the national level, but people are fans of their local teams or not necessarily their local team, but their favorite teams. And that connection is one of the real sort of true links of affinity and passion in this business. And that's yet another reason why this just needs that care and feeding, you know, as you're referring to. Yeah, and I, you know, I think if you if you don't turn these streaming products into something that's interesting and and relevant to the next generation of fans, 
you know, you are going to have some fan uh, challenges, but you're also just going to have people using social media and watching highlights, which is what a lot of leagues complain about. Hey, the next generation, they just want to watch two-minute highlights on Facebook. Well, you've got to make a compelling streaming product available, and I think that's what, what they're thinking about. Absolutely. Well, much more to come on this particular topic that we will be uh, continuing to explore in the coming weeks here. Uh, but as always, we also want to close out uh, the episode every week, uh, you know, looking ahead in the space and getting a further sense of what's catching our eye. And uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Yeah, Eric, I, I noticed a deal this week where one football and 11 sports secured the rights for nine European soccer leagues, the, the the TV and media rights. And I thought that was very interesting that these nine smaller leagues uh, across Europe bundled their rights together, were able to get, uh, it appears to be a really good deal, a, a three-year deal, but also a lot of focus on not only revenue, but data uh, exposure. And we'll see if this is kind of a wave of the future where you have some some smaller leagues make gain more clout by banding together as they as they package rights and, and see whether that's a, a playbook that works going forward. Yeah, I, I saw that as well. And I thought that was really smart that, you know, these are, you know, these are leagues in, you know, Denmark and Sweden and Northern Ireland and play. This is not La Liga or the EPL or Bundesliga we're talking about a little further down the food chain, so to speak, you know, but some high quality competition and you, you bring this out. And again, you provide a compelling product and some, you know, as we're discussing in some of these other topics, you know, other parts of the world there, you know, and you structure the economics correctly, there could be, you know, a nice little business there and some meaningful full take up as you know people recognize the, the quality of this competition yeah and I think again they they seem to be as focused on the exposure and having a partner that really cared about uh, their business as obviously the revenue is important too but I think to really get a partner or partners in this case that are excited about promoting and, and building that that seems like what they were looking to accomplish. You know, from my standpoint, uh, continuing to uh, keep an eye on what is unfolding in and around the fallout from the Washington football team uh, workplace uh, culture investigation. We had the results of this uh, earlier in the summer where there was no written report and a $10 million fine to the team. You know, since then, we've had leaks of emails that have led to the departure of uh, former Las Vegas Raiders head coach John Gruden. The latest step in all of this, and potentially the most dramatic, is now the U.S. House of Representatives is getting involved here, and they are asking for documents and emails and and materials related to this investigation that the NFL has not released on its own and have declined overtures from others such as the NFL Players Association and attorneys representing some of the former WFT employees. They've said no to all these people. They may not ultimately be able to say no to Congress. And it's going to be interesting to see this unfold because this uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee a couple of decades back, this was a very influential entity in, in helping to spur Major League Baseball and the MLB Players Association to make some, you know, pretty substantive reforms in their drug testing policy, particularly around performance enhancing drugs. And so, whether they can have the same impact, you know, vis a vis this uh, Washington football team matter is really going to bear watching. Yeah, Eric, I, it's it really will bear watching. I don't know how this is going to shake out. On the one hand, you know, the leagues are, are pretty good at dealing with Congress and finding ways to provide them with some information without necessarily having to show everything. On the other hand, this, this issue is getting so much attention that there is going to be increasing pressure to at least disclose more of what was discussed and, and, and the outcome of the investigation. So again, this will be one that, uh, that, that we'll be watching over the next several weeks. 
and more to come on that for sure. Uh, For now, that's going to close out another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. Uh, For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.